It's Tuesday, October 8th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Trump is facing criticism from both sides for a decision to withdraw troops in Syria for an expected Turkish attack on Kurds who have been U.S. allies in the fight against ISIS. He has also threatened to destroy Turkey's economy if they went too far. Morgan Chalfant, White House reporter at The Hill, joins us for more on Trump's rationale, getting our troops out of endless wars. Next, there's a cheating scandal rocking the poker world, and it's playing out over YouTube and online forums as internet detectives try to figure out what's going on. Poker player Mike Postle is under investigation for cheating during live-streamed poker games and is being accused of making too perfect a call on hands. It's not the hands that he's winning, rather, it is those that he is losing. David Hill, contributor to The Ringer, joins us for more. Finally, more people are going to dealer lots to buy a new car and walking away with seven-year auto loans. These loans with longer terms have created an illusion of affordability, and dealers are now making more money on the loans than on the cars they sell. Ben Eisen, banking reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how these longer-term loans are putting consumers deeper in debt. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We only have 50 people in that area. That's a small sector. And I don't want those 50 people hurt or killed or anything. I don't want anything bad to happen to our people. And I told that to President Erdogan. I said, don't hurt any of our any of our people get hurt. Joining us now is Morgan Chalfant, White House reporter for The Hill. Thanks for joining us, Morgan. Thanks so much for having me. The president has signaled that we are pulling troops out of northern Syria, paving way for Turkey to do some type of military response there. Everybody was kind of taken aback by that. There was a lot of criticism against the president saying that this is the wrong move. Morgan, tell us a little bit more about what's going on. The White House sent out a statement saying that the U.S. would be moving troops from the immediate area and that Turkey was expected to launch some sort of military operation. As things started to percolate, U.S. troops were moving out of northern Syria. This is something that Turkey has long threatened. They're in in conflict with the Kurds there, but we've been trying to broker some sort of peace agreement so that they wouldn't continue to threaten some sort of military engagement. But that didn't come to fruition, and the president has now decided that Basically, we're going to be moving troops now that Syria is threatening this and they're expected to launch some sort of military operation. One of the things that took everybody aback was that the Kurds there are one of our strongest allies in that area. They've been fighting with us to contain ISIS. They're watching over a bunch of people that they have captured that were fighting for ISIS and moving out of this and letting Turkey perform their military operation there. It seemed like we were just leaving them high and dry. That's what a lot of the criticism has been. Yes, we've had an alliance with the Kurds for several years fighting ISIS and the Syrian Democratic Forces, which is led by the Kurds in Syria, were pretty critical uh, early today of this decision by the president saying it was a stab in the back or something to that degree. And that they are warning that basically this could risk security in the region and possibly result in ISIS fighters being liberated or coming back after we've rid the region of many of them. Now, one of the other things that has kind of been reported is that the president made this decision after a phone call with the Turkish president Erdogan and basically the Pentagon, a bunch of people involved in working with Syria were completely caught off guard by this. And this has kind of been pretty constant, I guess, for the president, kind of this 
quick turnaround of foreign policy. He had this call with the Turkish president again back in December and did something very similar where he said we were going to take troops out. That didn't really pan out, but it just seems like this is the same thing happening again. Right. But of course, the White House is actually pushing back on this narrative. The president gave a news conference on signing a Japan trade deal and said that he consulted with everybody that went asked about people being blindsided, both Republicans in Congress that consult with him and also military leaders. And then a senior administration official told reporters that he was surprised by any reports that the Pentagon was left out or surprised by this and that there were consultations. Obviously, we're seeing reports otherwise, so it's really unclear what happened. But of course, Yes, we have seen the president kind of make snap decisions like this. It was very abrupt. We saw some reports, I think, earlier in the day that there had been a call with Erdogan. But the statement came out very late last night from the White House. There was really no advance notice. And then more information came out from the president via Twitter early today. And then now they're just kind of trying to address it by other statements from other agencies, etc. There was a lot of Republicans, a lot of supporters of the president that were hitting back on him for this decision. Lindsey Graham, among them, one of his biggest supporters said that this is just the wrong thing to be doing. So talk a little bit about that pushback. And then also what the president said in that press conference also, he kind of said, yeah, you know, I get everybody has their opinions. And it was kind of a measured response to that. It was surprisingly measured from Trump. He said that he understood the criticism. I think a lot of people on Capitol Hill, Republicans are, you know, they very traditional Republican foreign policy credentials. They advocate for a strong American military presence abroad, Lindsey Graham among them, several others. And Trump doesn't really fit that mold. He campaigned on really bringing American troops home from conflicts abroad. So that's one of the things that's motivating him to eventually withdraw fully from Syria. Officials are saying this is not a withdrawal from Syria today. Obviously, the president said last year that he wanted to withdraw U.S. troops and reverse on that. And then wanting to withdraw troops from Afghanistan as well. He definitely doesn't fall in line with the traditional Republican, more hawkish foreign policy folks on that end. So it did earn him a wide swath of criticism. The president did campaign on bringing troops home, and he's positioning this as such also. But those troops in question uh, right there in northern Syria aren't actually coming home. They're just moving a little further south. I've heard different numbers. I've heard dozens. I've heard uh, 100, maybe 200 forces that were being moved around. But they're not coming home. They're just being moved around to other areas in case Turkey does perform their military operations there. I'm hearing 50 to 100 special operators. That's what a senior administration official said a bit earlier. And yes, they're being moved to other bases, areas in Syria. They're not being withdrawn home. So I guess you can say withdrawn from the area, the region, but they're not being withdrawn from Syria and brought home. I think that when the president makes decisions like this and doesn't want to further engage in conflict or press Turkey, it raises concerns about whether or not he's going to bring up the specter of fully withdrawing from Syria, especially when you see rhetoric like he put forth earlier today about ending endless wars and letting Syria and other countries hash it out and wanting to bring American troops home. It's rhetoric we've heard from Trump before. We're going to continue to hear it from him, especially as the campaign gets underway. And then he adds a little bit of confusion, though, because after a lot of the criticism comes out, the president says, well, if Turkey goes too far, then I'm going to destroy their economy. So and then that was the confusing part was the president agreeing or advocating or letting Turkey perform these military operations And then later on, he says, hey, if they go too far, I'm going to stop them. So this just kind of adds to the confusion and why everybody gets all up in arms about decisions like this. Morgan Shelfont, White House reporter at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
we're investigating because unfortunately for our man Mike, he's been accused of cheating and having access to real-time software with the hold cards or some sort. He's got the access to the hold cards. We don't know how. No one knows how. No one up. He can't figure it out yet. But he's been accused of this, guys. Joining us now is David Hill, author and contributor to The Ringer. Thanks for joining us, David. Thanks for having me. There is a big poker cheating scandal going on right now. A poker player by the name of Mike Possel is under investigation for cheating during these live stream poker games. And it's kind of been this really interesting look into what's going on because of so much availability of video. Obviously, he's doing these on live stream. So there's video record of everything. And there's this quote unquote investigation going on by a podcaster, YouTuber named Joe Ingram. And he's just pouring over hours and hours and hours of tape of this guy, Mike Possel, playing, looking for any little clue to how he's cheating. David, tell us what's going on with this. Mike Possel is a um, professional poker player that lives in Sacramento area in California and plays regularly at a place called Stone's Gambling Hall. And a couple of years back, the card room started up a live streamed game and the viewers were able to see the players whole cards. And there were live commentators who would commentate on the action who were watching everything on a 30 minute delay from the game. They used RFID readers in the chips and on the table to be able to see what the whole cards that the players had were. This is something that was popularized at the Bicycle Casino in Southern California. So Stones, I think, was just trying to get in on a little of that action. Their stream was not nearly as popular as the Live at the Back stream, but it's pretty popular now because after one of the players in the game accused Mike of cheating and Joe Ingram, a popular podcaster, has sort of rallied around her allegations and has done his own investigation. Now there's thousands of people watching these streams and pouring over these videos to try to deduce what's happening. So Mike Postel is being accused of just playing too perfect of a hand a lot of times. A lot of times he will take it all the way towards the end and then fold at the last second and it ends up being like the best call. A lot of people have been talking to professional players or saying he has a win rate that some professional players don't have. He's making calls that professional players wouldn't make. So he's just kind of accused of being too perfect. What's interesting about it is that it's not the hands that he won that I think really burned him here. For me, anyway, it's hands that he lost that I think have really exposed what he's doing, right? Where he would have a very strong hand, but his opponent would have one that's just a little bit stronger. And he would just call a small bet or he would fold sometimes when any mere mortal would have put all their chips in and gone broke. That's where he's really burned himself with some of the hands that he lost. Mike Postle said he was blessed with good instincts and studied human behavior and that he can basically read his opponent's tells. And that's why he was making these calls. Do we know exactly what he's doing for this cheating. I know a lot of people are saying that he keeps his cell phone in his lap and he's constantly looking at his phone. Some people are saying it has something to do with these RFID chips in the cards themselves. Do we know <laughs> what he's doing? It's a lot like looking into the JFK assassination or something where people watched the Zapruder film over and over or dug through all the evidence that was available. And if you go online and on Reddit or any of these forums, you'll see that there's all kinds of theories and speculation about what he's doing. One of the things that I think is pretty clear is that there's something in his lap that he looks at before he, every tough decision almost certainly his cell phone that's got some information on it about what's happening at the table. But I think that at this point, a lot of people feel very confident that he is cheating, but there's still a question of mark around exactly how. And that's why I think this still continues to be a work in progress and people still are flocking to it and falling down that wormhole of watching all the video and parsing all the data to try to figure out that part of the mystery. I was just looking at a couple of these YouTube videos just to kind of 
get a sense for the story that we were covering right now. And you do notice little tiny things, but you can't tell, or maybe you think, okay, he's totally <laughs> cheating there. You're just going back and forth. And it's interesting because this is not one of the biggest poker scandals that have happened even very recently. There's been some other cases where the house was coordinating with a player to cheat other players out of their money. And you just don't know what's happening here. Stone's Gambling, for their part, has said that they stopped the live streams. They're investigating themselves. But you're right. You can't really pinpoint it exactly where it's happening. I think this is just the thing about the times that we're living in. I mean, it's true that this isn't even the largest cheating scandal that's hit the poker community in recent memory. And these kinds of small-scale cheating operations going on at little casinos around the country happen from time to time, and they don't make major news, and there's not like whole subreddits dedicated to them. What makes this unique is that there's just so many hours and hours of footage for people to pour over. And I think that's why this particular scandal, even though it's relatively not as much money and hasn't had as big of an impact as some of these other kinds of cheating cases that have happened over the years, this one has really captured people's imagination and attention because you can pour over all these hours and hours of footage. And I think that there's also something about this moment we live in today where people on the internet are kind of obsessed with taking down scammers and hucksters and grifters. And I think that this is another example of that where people online have found a guy who thought he was smarter than everybody else and they're taking kind of glee and pleasure in taking him down. And I think there's a little bit of that going on too where people are readying the pitchforks. David Hill, author and contributor to The Ringer, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The auto industry has sort of taken to basically stretching out the terms of auto loans. That means that if you get a seven-year auto loan, your monthly payments might look pretty manageable on a monthly basis. But if you look at it over the entire time, you're paying a lot more and you can kind of get yourself into a lot of debt. Joining us now is Ben Eisen, banking reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about car loans and how it plays out with the middle class right now, more and more people are getting seven-year auto loans. And it's kind of a sign that people really can't afford these cars. Dealerships are more than happy to give you a longer loan, but for you, it could put you into debt. Tell us a little bit about this. What you've seen over the last decade or so is the car loans have really lengthened in term. It's pretty much the norm now to get a seven-year auto loan, and they go up to eight or nine years as well. And I mean, looking at this at kind of a big macro picture here, what we've seen is that household incomes have risen at a pretty sluggish pace, but car prices have kind of zoomed ahead a lot quicker. And there's a lot of factors behind that. Cars are more reliable, they're safer, they're more technologically advanced, but that all pushes the car prices up. Plus, people still kind of have a taste for luxury vehicles, big SUVs and trucks and stuff like that. So... What's really happening is this gap is forming between what people can afford and the actual cost of what they're buying. And that's a gap that's kind of getting filled up with debt. In order to take on this debt but keep it affordable for the average buyer here, the auto industry has sort of taken to basically stretching out the terms of auto loans. And that means that if you get a seven-year auto loan, your monthly payments might look pretty manageable on a monthly basis. But if you look at it sort of over the entire time, you're paying a lot more and you can kind of get yourself into a lot of debt. You had a, uh, one example of a man named Devin Jones who went in, bought a Honda Accord. He paid $27,000 for the car, but then he took out a $36,000 loan to, you know, he had some unpaid debt, all this stuff 
together, I mean, it was almost $10,000 more that he ended up paying. I think Devin's story is sort of at the extreme end of what can happen, where he had two previous vehicles that he had bought. So he already had auto loans, and then he rolled that into a new car, which meant that the balance of the loan that he took out was just way higher than the car itself. He was underwater, or sometimes people call it upside down, which means that you just have this really big loan balance, and it's worth much more than the car itself. People can get into a lot of trouble like that, and they can also end up in sort of these perpetual cycles of debt where you're never fully paying down your car, and instead you just continue to grow this debt pile over time. Talk to us about what increases the amount of these loans. They always get you with the add-ons. I had never heard this term, but tell us about the box. When you go into the dealership's finance office, and that's when you're hammering out the details of what you're actually going to be paying. What we've talked about so far really dovetails with this other theme that's kind of taken place where the profits that the dealers are eking out at the dealership now more than ever come from financing the vehicle rather than selling it. You know, it used to be that you would take a large margin on actually selling the car itself, but nowadays that's more difficult because people go online and they know exactly how much to pay for a car. So instead of taking out the profits on the showroom floor, they're taking out the profits in the finance manager's office. So you go into the finance manager's office, you go into the box, and you get offered a loan, and the dealer is taking a margin on the loan itself, but they're also using the loan as a chance to pitch other types of financial add-ons, extended warranties, insurance, and sort of all these other things that they can sell you, and then they can roll it directly into their loan, so you never really have to see the full cost of it. So instead, all these kind of high-margin products are showing up in the finance manager's office. And because of that, at the dealership, the loan has kind of become the main thing that they sell. And the car, in a way, is sort of the byproduct. Anybody that's bought a new car recently and you're sitting in there and trying to hammer out the deal, sometimes you could be there for hours. You're tired. (laughs) You want to just get it over with. I mean, there's a lot of stuff to really pay attention to. And it gets tough. You know, that's their job every day to sell you these cars, to sell you these loans. And if you're not ready for it, even the most prepared person can come away with something more than they were really focused on. The last thing I wanted to ask is just, you know, we've been talking about how tough it is for people to keep up with these things. What happens when people start falling behind when they can't make the payments? A lot of times the dealers have these whole collection arms where their whole job is to somehow get that money back from you. When we talk about kind of the infrastructure that's built itself up and like flexed its muscles around the auto loan itself, we're not just talking about the dealer, we're talking about the auto lender. The dealer will make the loan and then they'll sell it to the lender. And the lender is the one who you interact with when you're making your payment or when you fall behind. And so for this story, we went inside of an auto lender and sort of learned how it works. And a lot of what they do focuses on collections because keeping people paying is just a very important part of making sure everything runs smoothly, of course. So, I mean, if you have an auto loan and you start to fall behind, you get called pretty much immediately. They want to kind of keep you paying because if you stop paying, you are much less likely to restart paying again. So there's kind of large staffs of people who are dedicated to helping you work out the situation. Ben Eisen, banking reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.